Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker. I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling, even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship He desires to have with you. Hi friends, welcome to today's teaching on John chapter 20, part 2. After this episode, we will be in our final chapter of John. And as I have read over and studied these final two chapters, I've tried to imagine the intensity of joy and wonder the disciples must have felt to see Jesus alive. I bet they shook their heads and mused to themselves on more than one occasion as conversations floated back to them and realizations of his past words materialized as reality in front of them. I know I would have thought to myself, oh, I remember when he said thus and such. Now I understand what he meant. In John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus has the Passover supper with his disciples and spends a good amount of time teaching and preparing them for his death, resurrection, and ascension. But in chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, they all run for their lives. Now, Peter and John circle back to watch Jesus's farce of a trial, but Peter, as predicted, denies Jesus three times and only John is left to be with Jesus at the foot of the cross in the company of a few dedicated women. Friday night, all day Saturday, and into Sunday morning, the disciples are afraid, depressed, and likely very anxious. But Sunday morning brings amazing news. Now, first of all, the tomb is empty, and John and Peter see it for themselves. After leaving the empty tomb and believing Jesus' body to be stolen, and Mary is still there in her grief, the disciples go home and miss the appearance of Jesus. But Mary does not. And Jesus gives her a special mission, to go find his brothers and tell them he is alive and will be ascending to the Father. So Mary does just that, and we ended our last podcast with Mary delivering that news to the disciples. Now, I didn't mention this in episode 38, but it's kind of a neat point that Jesus refers to his disciples as his brothers when he gives Mary the instructions to go find them and tell them he is alive. Never before had he used that term to describe his relationship with them. Jesus had been their teacher. And often, our English Bibles use the word rabbi to denote this title. But after his death and resurrection, he calls them his brothers. I love that shift in the relationship. Jesus is God the Father's son. As believers, we are also the Father's sons and daughters. So although Jesus is fully God himself, it is appropriate here to visualize this connection as brotherly. Just kind of a neat point I wanted to draw out of this. Okay, so let's pick back up in John 20 verse 19 and find out what happens next. This is from the Net 2 version available at Bible.org. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Okay, so it's the evening of the first day of the week. Remember, the Jewish week started on a Sunday. The Sabbath was a Saturday. So it's the same day as the first half of this chapter. It's what we now refer to as Easter Sunday. Did you catch where the disciples were? They were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why would they be afraid? Well, those leaders had just crucified their teacher and leader three days prior, and it's evening time. I'm certain word has gotten around Jerusalem that the tomb is open and the body is gone, as discovered that morning. So there is no doubt some foul play is suspected, and the disciples would be prime suspects in the rumor mill. Remember what Mary's first hunch was? It was that someone stole Jesus' body. And that's pretty logical and a fairly solid conclusion because usually dead bodies don't get up and move. Someone else has to move them. So they are behind locked doors, afraid. They've heard Mary's testimony. She came to them and delivered Jesus' message. But they're still barred in and afraid. So what does Jesus do? He appears in the midst of them. The text does not say he knocked and they let him in. It does not say he found a second entrance. No, he appeared in the room despite the door being locked. His resurrected body is not bound to the laws of space and time. Now, let's take a quick hop over into Luke to get a more complete picture of the scene. These few verses are from Luke 24, starting in verse 36. While they were saying these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified, thinking they saw a ghost. Then he said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and were amazed, he said to them, Do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. So Jesus, in his resurrected body, can appear and disappear at will and can pass through physical barriers. Imagine being in that room huddled with your peers just days after your leader was falsely accused and killed. There's rumors of his body being missing and rumors of him being alive. You don't know what to believe and suddenly he's right here in the middle of the room. I'm not surprised Luke tells us they were afraid and amazed and Jesus had to really convince them he was real. 
I might have had a really hard time with believing I wasn't seeing some apparition or something. Did you pick up on the two ways he verified he had a real body? First, he had them touch him. He pointed to his scars as proof it was him. Then he asked for fish and ate fish in front of them, again showing him he had a real body and it was truly him. Jesus also said a phrase to them twice in this scene. And anytime something is repeated, we should pay attention. He said, peace be with you. Let's look at these verses again. In verse 19, Jesus appears and immediately says, peace be with you. We know from Luke, they are afraid and startled. So verse 20, then Jesus shows them his hands and his feet and his side. They rejoice. Verse 21, Jesus again says, peace be with you. Just as the father has sent me, I also send you. Okay, so Jesus enters the room. The disciples are stunned in total shock, very afraid. Jesus tells them to have peace. He takes the time to calm them down, to prove he is who he says he is. They begin to believe. They're overjoyed. And then he repeats himself. Peace be with you. The Prince of Peace always brings peace, doesn't he? Even in the midst of turmoil, fear, confusion, and anxiety, when Jesus shows up, he brings peace. And with that, he brought a new commission for them. Just as he had been sent with a mission, now he was sending them on a mission. He had actually already detailed out much of this Thursday night at the Passover meal, but the disciples didn't really get it all then. And not only does he commission them, but did you catch what else he did? I'll read verse 22 again for you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so true confession. I had never really noticed this before. I always thought that the Holy Spirit did not come until Pentecost, where we read that in Acts. But here... We have evidence of Jesus through the act of breathing on them, giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, in the next verse, we have an even bigger head scratcher. Verse 23 says, if you forgive someone's sins, they are forgiven. But if you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. This verse has caused some to believe that humans have the power to forgive sins. But many of the commentators I have read and my own understanding of this does not line up with that teaching. Now, to be fair, I did not grow up in a faith tradition where I confess my sins to another human, like in a priest type situation or a confessional. So the idea of a human being able to forgive my sins is hard for me to connect with. But let's first of all start with context. Jesus has risen from the dead. And in a few short weeks, he will ascend to heaven. The ministry he has started needs to be continued. And in this conversation with these men, he's passing the baton to them, so to speak. He had just said, as I was sent, so I send you. Then he gives them the Holy Spirit and then finally pronounces that if they forgive someone's sins, they'll be forgiven. And if they don't, then the sins will not be forgiven. Remember, this act of forgiving sins is what got Jesus in so much trouble with the Jewish leaders in the first place. The Jews were very clear on the fact that 
No one could forgive sins except for God. Jesus never once taught anything other than this. He forgave sins because he is God. The Jews didn't believe him, so they thought he was a mere man claiming to be able to forgive sins. But Jesus never taught that men could forgive sins. In this conversation, he's commissioning these 11 men. Well, actually, literally, it's 10, because in a moment, we'll see that one is missing. But anyway, he's telling his closest followers, you are to continue my ministry. And if you declare that sins can be forgiven, they will be forgiven. But the implication here is that they are forgiven by God. Okay, so that's the context of the storyline. But let's also consider the message of the Bible from cover to cover. Does God ever indicate that humans can forgive other people's sins? No. Forgiveness of sins is a function of God alone, and the Bible is very clear on that. So Jesus is extending the role of preaching the salvation message to these disciples. And let's go all the way back to the Old Testament before Jesus. How did people get their sins forgiven? If you don't know much about the Old Testament, you may not know this, but it was through providing sacrifices. Grain offerings, dove offerings, goats, lambs, etc. Certain offerings for certain festivals and certain sacrifices for certain sins. And in fact, the high priest once a year was the one who made the major sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that occurred in the Holy of Holies, the part of the temple where God's presence rested. But the whole point of Jesus' death was to be the final sacrifice. Through his death, sins can be forgiven without any more sacrifice, forgiven by God. And I believe he's telling his disciples that this is the message they're to give. And if people don't believe, then forgiveness won't be provided to them. But he's saying to them, declare to people that sins can be forgiven. And if they believe that message, they will be forgiven of their sins by God. And if they don't, they won't be forgiven. Okay, so, so far we've made it five verses into this section today. <laughs> Let's keep going. I'm going to pick up reading beginning in verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were once again together in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. We aren't told why Thomas wasn't gathered with the other disciples that first Easter Sunday morning, but he is the only one missing. So 10 of the original 12, remember Judas has betrayed Jesus, leaving 11, but 10 of the disciples see Jesus. They touch his body. They see his scars. They talk to him. They watch him eat fish. 
And then they go tell Thomas and all tell the same story. We've seen the Lord. Now, I currently have a small group of women I meet with regularly for prayer and encouragement. We meet as often as possible, usually trying for once a week if we can. We share our lives with one another and trust each other with prayer requests and burdens. Can you relate? Do you have a group of friends who you can share life with? I sure hope so. These 11 men have been close friends for three years. They have traveled their country together and watched Jesus do miracle after miracle. There is a bond between them that is probably unlike anything we have experienced. Even if we do have a small group we're committed to, these 10 men all have lived together, eaten together, grown together, and they all have the same story and come to Thomas. Thomas, oh man, we wish you'd been there. We were there together for dinner and the door was locked and suddenly Jesus was there in the room and he talked to us. We touched his scars. He even ate with us. He's alive. All 10 men, same story. And Thomas says, nope, don't believe it. Got to see it for myself. I've got to touch his hands and his side. I have to see the nail marks or I will never believe. Whoa, dude, really? Ten of your closest friends are telling you the same thing? And you're going to hold out and say you have to see it for yourself? Do you relate to Thomas? I can be a bit of a stickler for proof. It's certainly part of my personality as one who wants to verify all things. I can be a little skeptical until I feel very certain there's proof and evidence to back up claims I'm supposed to believe. So I have to ask myself, would I be so determined to not believe even in the face of 10 of my closest friends with the same story? I'm not sure. I'd like to think I could trust my friend's testimony, but the context here is that Jesus died. People don't usually raise themselves from the dead, and rumors are swirling about Jesus' body being stolen. Thomas could have been thinking, look, you guys all saw an apparition. This is so impossible, I cannot believe this until I see it myself. So that's exactly what Jesus does for him, isn't it? Eight days later, Jesus shows up again. Again, the disciples are in a locked room. Again, Jesus appears in the middle of the room without going through the door. And Jesus initiates the conversation with Thomas. First, he brings peace. Did you notice that? First words John records Jesus saying in this scene is again, peace to you. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Touch my side. And Jesus says to him, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And how does Thomas respond? My Lord and my God. Doubting Thomas becomes worshiping Thomas. I wonder if in that moment he realized that holding out for proof wasn't actually necessary. I wonder if he regretted being so stubborn that he didn't take the testimony of his closest friends. I don't know. But we see Jesus gently admonish him for his lack of faith. Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. Ouch. So here's the lesson for me and for you. Faith is believing without seeing 
and blessings come to those who have faith. Holding out for proof can sometimes be a show of arrogance. Not always, but in a case like this, where 10 trusted disciples are repeatedly testifying to a work of God and one refuses to believe him, I think that's arrogance. Thomas's insistence that he see Jesus and he touch those scars himself is a lack of faith. And a demand that he be given the same proof God graciously gave the other ten? In this case, Jesus granted Thomas that opportunity. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Sometimes God calls us to faith without proof. And when we place our faith in him and choose to humbly believe, even when he doesn't provide tangible proof, we are blessed. I think Thomas walked away from that encounter humbled and very, very grateful for Jesus's grace. Now, let's go ahead and take a quick look at the last few verses of this chapter. This is verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Way back in the first few episodes of this series, I mentioned these verses. It's at the end of the gospel that John gives us the whole reason he wrote the gospel. Did you catch the phrase, so that, when I read this? I've made a big deal about this phrase before, since it's a clue that there is a cause and effect happening. John tells us he wrote the gospel so that his readers would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel so we could be certain Jesus is God's son. That we would have the plan of salvation laid out for us, and that if we believe Jesus' message, he would grant us eternal life. Isn't that good news? And gospel, by the way, is the word for good news. John's good news. John's gospel is so that we can believe Jesus is the Messiah. And John says Jesus did so many more things than what he recorded here. But the ones he chose are evidence so that we would know Jesus is the Son of God. All through this gospel, we have seen John repeatedly point to Jesus as the Son of God. He has a different style and records different events than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And why? So we won't fall into the trap of Thomas, but rather, so that we will believe. You're probably listening to this podcast because you already believe the good news of Jesus. But if by chance you're holding out like Thomas did, will you examine the words of this book and consider John's testimony? Jesus said, those who believe without seeing are blessed. Or maybe you know someone who's seeking and questioning the message of Jesus. Point them to this gospel and perhaps pass along this podcast so they too will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforTheOrdinaryLife.com.